0: We have been working our way through Paul's letter to the Galatians, and so if you would, if you've got a Bible, turn with me to that letter. We're in Galatians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can grab the, the black one that's there in the pew. Galatians 3.15 is where we'll be starting today. In this letter, Paul is defending the gospel, That word means good news. The gospel is the message of Christianity. Without the gospel, you don't really have Christianity. You don't really have Christians. Uh, And so you might have some religious gathering, but you don't have Christianity. What is the gospel? What is the good news? It is the announcement, right, as one Uh, Author says, it's not advice, it is the announcement of what God has done for us in Christ. It is the telling about his life and death and resurrection, and how that rescues us from our own sinfulness. And it's by believing the gospel, we call that faith, by trusting in the Gospel or trusting rather in, in what the Gospel tells us and that Christ in Christ alone, that is how Christians are created, are born that's how you become a Christian is by believing the gospel, and it's how you grow in Christ by continuing to believe the gospel. you never you never move past the gospel. We said that last week, but the reason Paul is writing this letter is because some false teachers are troubling the Galatian churches by adding requirements to the gospel. They're saying that God only truly accepts you when you follow the law. In this case, the Jewish law. But Paul says that if you add anything to the gospel, that actually nullifies it. It makes it void. Why? Because the gospel says it is Christ alone That earns your spot before God. So if you add anything to that, then you're effectively saying, I don't need what Christ has done. I can do it myself. And so that nullifies the gospel altogether. So you can see why Paul writes this letter and is so concerned. Now, what we've done, we've gotten into the heart of the letter. Uh, Paul's main argument is that our relationship to God is always... And forever, based on His grace. Always and forever, based on His grace, not on our performance. Not on our doing all the right things. That is not what secures our relationship to God. And he uses several examples to make that argument today. We're going to look at one of those, and it might seem a little bit odd to our ears, so just bear with me. But he uses the example of a last will and testament to try to explain what purpose the law serves them. So let's give our attention to God's word. Genesis three fifteen. Sorry, Galatians. Have I said Genesis more than once? Just once. Okay. Galatians, not Genesis. If you turn to Genesis, go back. It's got a lot of pages to cover. Galatians three, fifteen. Paul writes, To give a human example, brothers. Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It doesn't say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Don't give up just yet. I know it's weird. We're going, to talk, we're going to talk about it. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture... "...imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian." For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. This is the word of the Lord. And while the grass withers and the flowers fade, the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask for his help in understanding it. Lord, again, it might be hard for us to follow what it is that Paul is saying here. But even if we do follow it, we still need your spirit to help us understand it and to apply it to our hearts. And so, Holy Spirit, would you come? We pray that your word would come with power to our hearts so that we would believe and find life. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This, this still may be true. I don't know. I didn't check. It's been a long time since I've been on Facebook. Um, but in the early days of Facebook... You know, back when you used to have to prove uh, that you were a college student in order to get into Facebook. That was a thing, believe it or not. Some of you may not have been born then. It's okay. Um, you, when it came to relationship status, you could say what your relationship status was. And there was, there was one option that, was, that said, it's complicated. Now, I don't know about you guys, if you've ever been in a relationship where you would say, it's complicated. It's complicated. Um, but you could say that the law that the relationship between the law and the gospel is complicated at least it 's been misunderstood for a very, very long time it 's the relationship between god 's law and his gospel god 's law and his grace that led to the Protestant Reformation over five hundred years ago and for churches to break away from Roman Catholicism. that was about law and gospel. What role does the does the, the gospel play and the law play, but it goes even further back than that. We see it goes all the way back to the pages of Scripture, right here. Paul is writing this letter because there is confusion about the relationship between God's law and God's grace, or God's gospel. And so, for several weeks now, we've been hearing that Christians don't live by doing the law, but by resting in what Jesus has already Done. And yet, that raises some good questions. What purpose does the law serve? Why did God give the law in the first place? How does God's grace relate to his law? What do we do with the law now? Those are some of the questions that Paul explores in this passage. And at least, he doesn't say everything, but at least the main thing that he says here is this. God gives the law to point us to his grace. God gives the law to point us back to his grace. And here's how Paul makes that point. First, he tells us that grace comes before the law. Second, he tells us that the law is given to reveal our sin. And then third, the law makes us ready to receive God's grace. So first, Paul tells us grace comes before the law. Now, if you were tracking, as I read, there are two words that come up. There's a contrast that Paul is making, and it's between the law and the promise. And if you were here with us last week, we talked some about that promise. It was made to Abraham, and it was the promise that God would bless the whole world through Abraham's descendants, okay, through his offspring. Now... When God makes that promise, it is unconditional. There are no strings attached. Therefore, we call it a gift. We call it grace. So that word promise, I'm attached to grace. Okay? Um, but that raises the question, which one of those has priority? Is it the promise or is it the law? Uh, the promise came first and then the law, but... Which one rules the other? How, how how are we to understand the law? And so what Paul does in verse 15 is, is he begins with the analogy of a human will. So just kind of bear with me as we walk through this. Most of you are probably familiar with the idea of a last will and testament. Um, but you know that once the person who made the will has passed, there is nothing you can change about that will. Right. And so let's just imagine that you have a large and wealthy family. We can all dream uh, and that the the head of the family, whoever it was, the one that possesses all the wealth, they pass away. And so, right, they have a will. Uh, and in that will, all of their wealth is to be portioned out as an inheritance to the family. And you can't show up at that meeting right where, where the the will is opened and read uh Now, before I go any further in this analogy, I'm not a lawyer. My legal advice or my legal description is worth exactly what you paid for it. Absolutely nothing. Do not take what I'm about to say as like rock solid, okay? But as I understand it, um, if you're going to be in that meeting and the will is read, you don't get to pipe up and say, hey, um, can we change that? I was hoping for the Ferrari, not the grand piano. Can I get the Ferrari? Right, that's not that's not how that works. Like once it's once it's read and given, it's it's done. Right, you cannot annul or change the will once it is uh, once it is ratified. And so that's that's what Paul is saying here about the law and the promise. Look at verse seventeen. He says the law, which came afterward 430 years after the promise does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void I'll simplify it even further God made a promise to Abraham he promised to bless the world through Abraham's descendant okay and he even uses that singular word offspring and he tells us that that word is that that person that descendant is Christ so let's Step aside for just a second right there and make an important point. All of the Bible hangs together. Right? When you come to the Bible, it's, it's, it's very easy to read it and get confused and be like, well, what does this have to do with that? But right here, Paul is telling us that there's a single thread that runs through all of Scripture, and it's related to Christ. Okay? So, God promised to bless the world through Abraham's offspring, you know, a couple of millennia later. That would be Jesus. Does the law then, that comes after that promise, make that promise void? Paul says, no, it can't. The promise has been made and ratified, right? That's how, that's how blessing is coming. It cannot come through the law. It cannot, uh, it cannot change the promise, all right? Um, but that's exactly, so the, the law does not supersede or take over the promise, but that's exactly what the Judaizers, these false teachers, that's exactly what they're teaching. They're saying, in order to inherit God's promise, you have to abide by his law. And Paul says very clearly in verse 18, If the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. The promise here's, here's what this means for you and me. The promise governs the law. Grace governs the law, not the other way around. We often try to switch it. And we do this, we'll even say things like, you know, when something good happens to us, we'll say something like, well, I must have been living right. What are we saying? I was doing all the right things, and therefore I received the promise. I received the blessing. I received something good. Paul says, that's not how this works. Grace comes before the law. The law does not nullify grace. That's not how we inherit God's promise. But then, that raises a good question. And Paul, Paul raises it himself in verse 19. Why then the law? Why does God give us the law? And his answer in verse 19 is this. It was added because of transgressions. What's a transgression? Transgression. The, the word means to, to step off or deviate from the path. And so here's what Paul is saying. What the law does is it takes my sin, which is already there, and shows how it is a transgression. For instance, you can be speeding without knowing the speed limit. You can, you can be breaking the law and I'm not even going to get into the question of whether going five miles over is a sin. We're not going to talk about that. Right. But you can be. It's the law. OK. You can be breaking the law and not know that you're breaking the law. Does that does that mean that you're not a lawbreaker? Is ignorance of the law an excuse to break the law? No. Right. That's a core tenet of American law. You Ignorance is no excuse. So. what What the speed limit sign does is tell you, hey, you're speeding, and by how much. So to use this analogy, right, it takes your sin, which is already present, already there, and says, here's how you're sinning. That's what the law does. It reveals how your sin is a transgression of God's law, is a deviation from God's path. Law, what the law does is spell out what sin is and make it real to your heart. That is the purpose of the law. Let's use Paul's own example. He elaborates on this uh, in his letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 7. I'm going to read from verses 7 and 8, but if you want to go back and consider that whole chapter, it's worth your time. He writes this What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Paul's saying, I would not have been aware of what sin is if it had not been for the law. He goes on. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, so covetousness is already in Paul's heart, right? What the law does is it comes along and says, hey, Paul... Every time you look at Bob's tractor and wish that it was your tractor and you even thought about ways that you could get Bob's tractor from him, right, that's coveting. And it is against God's character. And it shows a lack of contentment on your part that you're not happy with what God has given you that you want what he's given to someone else. That's what the law does. Right. So the sin is already present. But what the law does is bring it out. And then it goes even further He says, but sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So law not only defines sin, but then my rebellion is even further aggravated by the law. Have you ever told a child not to do something? Don't put your finger on that. It will hurt you. What's the child do? You mean this? Right? There is something about our sinful hearts that when we hear the law, they go, hmm, I'm going to need to break that. My, my father in law, I think it was his, his father who told him that there are two kinds of people there are rule bumpers and there are rule jumpers. There are those people who just kind of bump up against the rules or testing them, you know. Notice he didn't say there are any rule followers, there are rule bumpers. There's those who bump up against the law, and then there are rule jumpers. Right? They just run headlong through it. Okay. So what sin does is it, or what what the law does is it reveals my sin, and even further aggravates it. Right? I want to rebel more. Does that mean there's a problem with the law? Is the law bad? No. Right? It's necessary for you to tell the child to not stick the fork in the in the outlet. That's a good law. It protects human life, protects the child's life. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with me. I'm the rebellious one. And so the law's job is to reveal my sin to me. But then that raises another question, and Paul asks it in verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Is law against grace? Are these two things working in opposite directions? And again, Paul says, no, certainly not. He says, "If uh, if a law could be given, if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. In other words, if it was possible for the law to save you, It would do that. But it can't. Why? Because I won't. Uh, Because I can't follow the law. And so, what the law does then is it makes us ready to receive God's grace. Uh, Throughout this passage, you hear something else. Uh, In verse 16... Promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, not many but one, your offspring, who is Christ. Verse 17, uh, the law does not annul a covenant previously ratified so as to make the promise void. Um, Let's see. He says, all right, verses 19 through 20, the the weird verses. Uh, Why then the law is added because of transgressions. It was put in place through angels by an intermediary. What in the world is Paul talking about? So those are difficult verses. There's, uh, there are different interpretations to go with them. But here's the one I'm going with. I think Paul is showing how God's promise is superior to the law. Uh, Moses would be the intermediary talked about, right? He's the go-between. He's the one who receives the law from God at Mount Sinai. Uh, in other places in the Bible, angels are also mentioned as being there. So... What it looks like is God's law is delivered third-hand. It comes from God through angels to Moses to the people. So God's law is delivered third-hand, as it were. But how does God reveal his promise to Abraham? Directly. So the promise is superior in that sense to the law. It was revealed directly to Abraham, which I think is what he means when he says God is one. That's just my interpretation. But over and over again through this passage, every time he talks about the law, he talks about it being temporary. And that it's temporary. It lasts until the promised descendant should come. And that's exactly what the law is meant to do. It makes us ready to receive God's grace. And so right here in these verses, Paul uses two pictures to describe the law. One, he says, uh, the law is like a prison that holds us captive. Uh, Or a guardian. And so that word for guardian there, some of your translations may say say teacher. That's probably not exactly accurate. This person, usually a slave, was charged with governing the sons of the family. And so it was this guardian's job to make sure the sons got to school, but also to discipline them. So there's probably not a teacher or a schoolmaster, but a disciplinarian. What do those images mean? God's law tells us about his will for his people, what to do and not do, the consequences that follow. And because we have all disobeyed, he says in verse 23, we are all under the law. So the law is like a jailer. It throws us in prison. It's like a guardian that rebukes and punishes us. But the good news is that the law was not God's first word Nor is it his last. Because that was before faith came. Before Christ came. And now that Christ has come, Paul says, we are no longer under a guardian. If you are in Christ, you are not in the prison of the law anymore. Now, here's what... I realize that's a very tightly reasoned argument that Paul is using. It may be very difficult to follow. Here's here's what I think you can come away with. And this is for everybody in the room. You've got to go through the law before you can come to Christ. Why? Because one, the law reveals your need. I am guilty and I need to be justified. But because I'm guilty... I cannot justify myself, and so I need someone else to justify me. If you're going to truly understand God's grace, you first have to go to the law. You first have to come through the law, right? If, if you don't know that you have a fatal disease, you're not going to look for a cure. Or, if you think your disease is not fatal, you'll look for the wrong cure. And so it's the law that says your disease is fatal. But, even though the law is that doctor that tells me my disease is fatal, once the law has done its job, once the law has convicted us and shown us our sin, we need to run to Christ. Once the law has done its job, do not wallow in guilt and shame. Do not remain under the law saying, I'm just going to try a little bit harder. I'll get it right. You'll see. You won't find life through the law. And so once the law has done its job, once you hear the law condemn you, then run to Jesus for his mercy and lay hold of him. As the old hymn says, let not conscience make you linger nor of fitness fondly dream all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him the law shows you your need and then it points you to your to the grace that you have in Jesus if you're here this morning and you're under the law maybe you've never believed in Christ what the law the, the law may need to do some work on your heart even if you're in Christ, the law may need to do some work, right? There are area. I mean, we, we had a whole repentance of sin, right? We do this every Sunday because we need to hear the law do its work on our hearts. Why? So that we'll turn from our sin and run to Jesus. So that we'll turn from our own self-righteousness, right? That's really, that's really the work the law does, is it keeps you from thinking that you're righteous, right? If you really study the law... There's no way you can come away from it going, I think I got this covered. I'm in pretty good shape. right?" The law's job is to level you, is to put you down so that you go, I can't trust myself. I need to trust someone else. John Newton, uh, the writer of Amazing Grace, is rumored to have said this at the end of his life. He says, When I was young, I knew many things. Now that I'm old... I know only two. I am a great sinner, and Jesus is an all-sufficient Savior. May that be true of you and me. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the law. And we repent of our rebellion of it. Lord, we thank you for using the law to reveal to us our own great need of you That we wouldn't have known sin, as Paul says, apart from the grace of the law. And yet, God, for many of us, we we labor and struggle under the law. We remain in the law when we don't have to. And so I pray that we we would let the law do its work, that you would do the work of the law in our hearts. And then when we see our sinfulness and our need, that we would run to you. And find freedom from that prison, the freedom that only Jesus can offer. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our prayer focus. Folk-